Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушает. В России Послушайте сегодня вступают в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Делаю Я уже говорил о сотруднике безопасности. С Новым годом вас. С Новым веком. Well, we probably won't be seeing a reset button anytime soon. It's also highly doubtful that the new American president will be looking into Vladimir Putin's eyes and getting a sense of his soul. And he certainly won't have a back-slapping friendship with Vladimir Putin like the one Bill Clinton enjoyed with Boris Yeltsin. Nor will there be anything like the business-like partnership George H.W. Bush enjoyed with Mikhail Gorbachev. No, as far as the post-Cold War world goes, we are pretty much entering uncharted territory. In fact, not since Ronald Reagan took the oath of office back in January 1981 has a U.S. president entered the White House with a more adversarial relationship with Moscow than the one president-elect Joseph R. Biden will inherit next month. But unlike Reagan, who came to office with the entire U.S. national security infrastructure and the transatlantic alliance calibrated to contain the Soviet Union, Biden will need to reconstruct much of that architecture almost from scratch. So what can we expect? Well, today I got just the person to talk to about that question. Hello from my makeshift studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore, and I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in the D.C. metro area is Michael Carpenter, who served as the NSD Russia director and as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense in the administration of former President Barack Obama. Mike is currently the director of the Penn Biden Center and, like me, is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Welcome back to the podcast, Mike. It's good to see you. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be back. Good to have you. And just to be clear from the outset, Michael, it's it's understood that you are not speaking in any way for the president-elect or the transition, that the views you expressed are yours and yours alone. But that said, you are in the president-elect's orbit and you've long been part of his team and you know his thinking. So I think what you have to say here is going to be pretty valuable to our listeners. Now, there's a story out there about when Biden met Putin back in March of 2011. I don't know if it's true, but it's been reified and repeated so much it may as well be. Um, Biden reportedly said to Putin, I'm looking into your eyes and I don't think you have a soul. Putin's response reportedly was, we understand each other. So to get the ball rolling, Mike, how do you expect this to go? How do you expect Biden's Russia policy to play out? And what would you like Biden's Russia policy to look like? Well, Brian, uh, great question. You know, I tend to think of the next administration's Russia policy as being divided amongst various different pillars, which reflect different aspects of the relationship. And so maybe I could run by those and then we can flesh them out in more detail. Okay. But sort of the way I conceptualize this, and of course, as, as you mentioned at the outset, I am speaking just in my own personal capacity, but having discussed this with President-elect Biden in the past, you know, I, I sort of see this as resting on a first pillar that sort of encompasses the enhancement of our deterrence and defense capabilities that involves strengthening NATO and ensuring that there is no room for Russian, either conventional or nuclear attack on, on the alliance. And so that's that's pretty basic. 
The second pillar is sort of a pillar that is based on imposing costs on Russia or consequences, if you like, in those instances where Russia is either hostile overtly towards the United States or covertly, or it engages in egregious violations of the sovereignty of other countries, right? And so typically we think of this as, as sanctions, but there's been a lot of sort of reflexive sanctions over the last few years. And I like to think of this as, as a much broader, more holistic cost imposition strategy that can include military force posture, actions in the energy domain, such as, for example, stopping the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, things of that nature. The third pillar is what I think is the most important, actually. Maybe I should have started with it. It is the effort to plug those vulnerabilities, to make ourselves more impervious, not just to Russian malign influence, but Chinese malign influence, Iranian malign influence, by preventing these countries from being able to abuse our open societies through dark money operations, disinformation, cyber attacks, energy coercion, so on and so forth. Fourth pillar is one of strategic stability. So this is, I think, an area where we can improve our strategic stability dialogue, build hopefully on a near-term extension of the New START Treaty, and start to consider other forms of arms control to encompass the new weapon systems that are coming online in the near future, things like nuclear torpedoes, nuclear-powered cruise missiles, and so on and so forth. And that also includes, I should say, risk management and crisis management, or crisis management and risk reduction measures, I should say. Finally, last pillar is one of sort of dialogue or person-to-person -person ties between the U.S. and Russia, focused on civil society, but especially on the next generation of Russians, where I think we have largely neglected to engage, and we have a lot of tools and a lot of potential commonalities with this younger cohort of Russians, and I think we should just be doing a lot more in that space. So that's sort of broadly how I see it. I see the relationships are divided into those areas. Um, you know, I think Biden fundamentally approaches Russia from a position of strength, but where, you know, he is open to the idea of dialogue and potentially even cooperation in a few limited areas. That, that's how I see it in any case. No, it's interesting, Mike, as you were laying out those five pillars and I was taking notes and kind of labeling each of them. And when you talked about enhancement of deterrence and defense, I thought containment. When you talked about imposing costs, I, of course, as you mentioned, I thought sanctions. When you talked about plugging vulnerabilities, I thought resilience. And the interesting thing about these three pillars for me, and I'll, I can get to the other two in, in a moment, but the interesting thing about these three pillars is, is they are all part of something that I'm kind of trying to label hybrid containment, right? Hybrid containment to protect us from a either a kinetic attack on us ourselves or our allies, but also a non-kinetic attack to protect ourselves from Russian banks as well as from Russian tanks. Do you see any movement toward like punitive sanctions that are designed to change Russia's behavior in response to do discrete actions toward a more of a doctrine of containment like we had during the Cold War period? Well, look, I agree with you in some ways. I think it's necessary to have a deterrence capability that prevents Russia from trying to take advantage of what it may see as opportunities to effectuate 
a military fait accompli. So there needs to be strength there. There needs to be a wall that makes very clear that there's no room for military kinetic, if you like, entrepreneurship on the part of the Kremlin. But what that does is when you reduce the availability of military options, it just simply pushes in a way the Kremlin to explore more and more hybrid or, you know, non-kinetic options for achieving its aims, which fundamentally are to weaken Western democracies, split up the NATO alliance, and delegitimize norms of human rights and democracy around the world. So we need to be very, uh, we need to invest a lot more resources, let's put it that way, into those precisely what you label as the resilience pillar. Things like anti-money laundering regulators and cooperation multilaterally across nations, putting more emphasis on forward defense against cyber attacks, those sorts of things to diminish the surface area that Russia has available. And as I said earlier, not just Russia, but China, Iran, Mm -hmm. other countries to attack us in this sort of hybrid way, if you like. So, yes, I agree with the thrust of your question. Okay. No, I'm, I'm, you, you mentioned kind of cleaning up things like money laundering. I mean, I, I just recently published something where I, I laid out a whole series of steps that we can take. And I labeled this section, cleaning up the state of Delaware and the city of London, just to throw kind of a journalistic tagline on it. But right. Other- but, you know, and Brian, just, just to interrupt you, but those sorts of actions should not be seen you know, they may be containment. I don't know. Well, in fact, I don't know if they're really containment because they should not be viewed by the other side as threatening because they're really not. They're defensive actions and they pertain to our own regulations of, say, campaign mm-hmm. finance laws or cybersecurity. So they shouldn't be seen as threatening, but at the same time, they do greatly diminish the ability of our adversaries to be able to subvert our institutions. Yeah, I agree with you about that. The thing that, that where, where I reach this conclusion is I've, I've kind of come to the conclusion that since the end of the Cold War and the kind of ascendancy of the neoliberal model that we we all to one degree or another bought into from the 90s on was that the deregulation was good. This hyper laissez-faire economy is good. And what we have done is we've deregulated to a point where there are gaping holes that threaten our security right now that hostile foreign actors, be it Russia or China or Iran or what have you, can exploit these holes. I don't think we deregulated our economies with the intention of creating a security risk, but that that seems to be the result. And part of, I guess, containment is re kind of refortifying our defenses in these non-kinetic areas. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I would say there's another element to the sort of foreign policy mantra, at least of the first decade after the collapse of the Soviet Union that we need to discard. And that is the modernization paradigm in the social sciences, which held that with greater integration of Russia and China into international organizations like the WTO, and by binding Russia to a series of international commitments, that Russia would become sort of a responsible stakeholder in the international system. The corollary to that was that as Western investment flowed into Russia, and as Russia and China both became capitalist states, that you know there would a middle class essentially would develop that would push for liberalism and democracy. Well, that was a completely flawed set of assumptions that we brought to our policies in the 90s, and I think those are now being rejected. And we realize that yes, we need to precisely move away from laissez-faire. We need to harden 
some of the institutions that we have left vulnerable. But we also need to realize that it is not inevitable that with greater interdependence, Russia or China will necessarily seek not to attack. In fact, they may feel more and more threatened uh, over the course of time. Yeah, we're, we're exactly on the same page here. I mean, the way I like to phrase this is we got globalization wrong. We assumed that globalization would only spread liberal values when, in fact, we're now learning that it also spreads illiberal values. And this also points to a couple of contrasts I want to kind of to bring out into the to the light here is, is a, a contrast with the Cold War and a contrast with the post-Cold War. The contrast with the Cold War is that then we had two hermetically sealed hostile systems facing off against each other. Now we have two normative systems competing in an integrated, globalized world. Um, the contrast with the post-Cold War is then that we believed that post-Soviet Russia would adopt Western norms and values. Now there's an increased realization that Moscow is pretty much an adversary. I guess my question is, and we've been kind of dancing around the fringes of this, is how do you deal with an adversary like this in an integrated globalized world when they are in our financial space, when they are in our information space because of those flawed assumptions that we were we are all operating under since the 1990s? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And I think it also brings to light some of the failures in terms of the language we use to describe the current moment. A lot of national security strategists love to use the mantra, great power competition, mm -hmm. which is not in and of itself inaccurate. Great powers are competing, but it smacks of the neorealist school of international relations, which holds that essentially the governance model of states doesn't matter. It's the balance of power in the international mm -hmm. system that determines international behavior. And you know, I think that's another one of these fundamentally flawed assumptions that actually obscures a lot more than it clarifies and puts us on the wrong track as far as our policy prescriptions go. Because what we're facing today is actually a competition of governance systems. Uh -huh. It's authoritarian oligarchy against liberal democracy. And that's what characterizes both Russia and China, both the authoritarian element, but also the oligarchic element, the concentration of power and money in the hands of a very narrow elite. In China's case, it's the Chinese Communist Party. In Russia's case, it's Putin's inner circle. You know, the Chinese Communist, some people think that, the, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is bent on pushing Marxism-Leninism. You know, they've long ago abandoned any belief in those principles. It's very much based on this competition between governance systems. Until we realize that, I don't think we're going to get a firm handle on how to push back on both Russia and China. These are not, you know, a Kissingerian billiard balls. Right, that, exactly. where it doesn't matter what their internal government structure looks like. It very much matters. No, this is this is largely the way I look at it. I mean, we have two normative systems, one based on, you know, all these things we we learned in civics class and hold near and dear, the rule of law, individual rights, accountability, transparency, and another one based on institutionalized kleptocracy, arbitrary rule, uh, patron-client relationships, and the subordination of power to money. And so these two normative systems are competing in this I, I don't know what to call it. I, I will not call it a cold war. You have this normative competition in an integrated world. And to me, that's the that's the tricky part. And how do you, without building new walls, 
or yeah. maybe it's necessary well, to build. So, so, you know, I think with regards to Russia, actually, the challenge is perhaps a little easier than it is with regards to China. Since we're here to talk about Russia, the Russian economy is, is frankly quite small uh, when compared with the G7 economies. Um, and so Russia is interdependent in many ways with European economies, not so much with the U.S. economy. And so, you know, the way I see it, so Russia poses a threat to Western democracies because it is the most aggressive power on the planet today in terms of trying to subvert these powers using the various hybrid methods we discussed earlier. China, however, poses a different threat because China's sort of techno-authoritarianism threatens to outcompete liberal mm-hmm. democracy through all the various methods that China uses, theft of our intellectual property, the unfair market access restrictions, subsidies, a clever industrial policy focused on things like AI and quantum computing. So there are two very different challenges. You're right. We can't completely decouple from either Russia or China. So I think our the economic tools we have available to us are much stronger than they are in the Chinese case. Can we do things, and I know all these things are controversial, but... Can we, and I, I and I look at these as kind of the non-kinetic nuclear arsenal, and they should be thought of that way responsibly, but things like restrictions on the buying and selling of Russian sovereign debt, things like a SWIFT ban, can we, should we be thinking in those terms? Do you think we will be thinking in those terms? You know, Brian, I, I'm not so sure. I think we have better options available. A SWIFT ban on would be Russia devastating to the would- Europeans. It would be devastating to our European allies, and it could, you know, counterintuitively lead Russia to default on its debt to Western countries, which is, you know, not what we want. And it would push, you know, Russia, well, more into the hands of the Chinese, but, you know, that's happening anyway. What I think we have available to us are a number of other steps that could be very effective if only we had the political will to actually implement them. Things like stopping the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, or for that matter, stopping the second pipe of the Turk Stream project. You know, those are things that are are not terribly difficult to do, but would have enormous impact inside the Kremlin. And we would be sending a very firm message to Russia. You know, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the the use of chemical weapons in the UK, that these sorts of things are beyond the pale. So I don't think we need to move to a swift ban. I think we've got other options available. But, you know, but at the same time, we've got, you know, these last four years, we've had a president in, in Donald Trump who's advocated for Russia rejoining the G8. We've had, you know, in France, we've had President Macron advocating for sort of a reinvigorated relationship, especially Mm -hmm. on the business side with Russia. And we've had, you know, the Nord Stream pipeline sort of inching closer and closer to completion in Germany. So we've been very hypocritical and very inconsistent in terms of the types of measures we've applied. So, you know, that's why I sort of cringe at talk of a swift ban. Let's just be a little bit more consistent first, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, okay. and, then, and then let's talk about, you know, what, whether that works or not. I mean, would you agree that things like that to have on the table as a threat, but not something we're going to follow through on, except in the most dire of circumstances? Um, the message is clearly sent that 
certain actions will trigger these kinds of things. I mean, we don't, you know, we never intended to use our nukes, but they were there. Right. This is the way I think of these things. Just from my reading of the Russian press and watching what R- Russian officials are saying, they are terrified of things like this. They're terrified yeah. of ban on sovereignty. Sovereign yeah. They're terrified of swift bid, and they're terrified of COCOM style export restrictions. Right. Yeah. You know, I think I think that's all right. Um, what I would say with regards to sanctions, especially financial sanctions, is that uh, there's a bit of a misunderstanding amongst both practitioners and, and pundits as to, you know, what the goal of these measures really is. It is, you know, it is not in the near term necessarily to reverse Russia's actions, say, for example, troop deployments in Ukraine. It is to create, rather, over the long term, a clear escalation of consequences and costs for the Kremlin, so that in the future, when they look back on these policies, they clearly see that this was a miscalculation and was not worth the pain that they suffered as a result. I think that's the goal. I think it is not realistic to expect that sanctions tools alone will, for example, compel the Kremlin to withdraw its forces from Ukraine. Not not to say that that shouldn't be our aim or our explicit aim is that Russia completely remove its troops from sovereign Ukrainian territory. Absolutely, that should be our aim. But sanctions tools alone are not going to achieve that. Uh-huh. Mike, before I move into the second half, there's a couple of other things I wanted to touch on. Um, one of them is your initial pillar, the enhancement of deterrence and defense, which I kind of branded kind of you know traditional uh, containment. And also your talk about the strategic stability, new start engagement as well. I wanted to get you to kind of comment on the two of these things. The enhancement of deterrence and defense. I mean, you serve in the in the Pentagon as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Obama administration. What would you have in mind there beyond kind of enhanced forward presence and, and the moving of NATO troops into the Baltic states and Poland? Would you have a more robust troop presence in Europe? Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself because mm, the, the you know president-elect Biden has said that he plans to have a global force posture review that looks holistically mm. at the U.S. military footprint around the world and then makes decisions based on how to best rationalize the deployment of troops in various different theaters, including Europe, but also the Indo-Pacific and, and other regions. So that's a process that I think uh, will take place and eventually, hopefully, will settle in a in a good place where there is a sufficient force posture in in Europe to to deter Russia. But in the meantime, there's a lot of things that NATO can do to enhance its deterrence. And, you know, some of those things are already underway. You know, NATO nations are procuring the F-35, which is terrifically important because the fifth generation capability that the F-35 provides, you know, sort of, well, it doesn't obviate, but it really reduces the relevance and the the salience of the A2AD bubbles that Russia has created in various different parts of Europe. And so that really enhances NATO's capability in terms of deterrence. And then there's, you know, other measures like changing the Baltic air policing mission to a to an air defense mission mm. where you have also mobile air defense capabilities deployed in the Baltic, um, sort of making the Baltic states more harder targets for mm-hmm. for potential Russian aggression. And these things don't need to, you know, the Russians are often concerned with what they call trans-border offensive capability. You know, in other words, they're worried that if we put in place a, a huge number of troops on the eastern flank, that, you know, we could invade the Russian Federation. So obviously, NATO's not going to go there. There's no 
Mm-hmm. No one wants to do that. It would be too costly. There are things that we can do that are that will clearly show resolve and that will improve our capabilities without having an offensive potential. So that's really the sweet spot. That's where we want to be. We want to have a very capable, very ready, very mobile force spread across the eastern flank so that Russia knows there is absolutely no place where it can strike and hope to achieve success. At the same time, we don't want that to be threatening or offensive, and it doesn't have to be. That's the, that's the thing. You know, through long-range fires, standoff missiles, all of those things contribute to deterrence. The other thing I wanted to touch on was the the engagement piece, because if you read the wishful thinking you see in the Russian press, there is always this desire for the so-called grand bargain with the West, what the political pundit in Moscow, Vladimir Fedolov, calls the Russian-American committee to save to run the world. Um, effectively, that we make a grand bargain where we give them what they want in exchange for, I don't know what, um, but there is always a danger here. Um, when we talk about engagement, about what we are talking about, uh, we are not talking about Ukraine's sovereignty. We are not talking about a sphere of influence in the former Soviet space or anything of the like. But that's what they hear when they hear talk of engagement. I just want to be really clear here. When you talk about that engagement pillar, we're talking about very discreet things like arms control, correct? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. There can't be any not only are we just talking about arms control, but you know we have to be very clear-eyed about what we hope to achieve. I don't think anyone expects that either the next administration or the administration after that could hope to achieve some sort of reborn conventional forces in Europe treaty, for example. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is very narrow measures to limit the potential of an arms race. And, you know, we've talked to the Russians for years and years about trying to improve transparency and confidence building measures like the Vienna document, and they've always resisted. So, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to beg them to modernize these documents and institutions. We should put it on the table, Uh you know, but, but we're not going to run after them hoping that they're going to sign on to this and in the meantime, you know, give up all sorts of things in order to get something that may be a chimera in the end anyway. So I think the the best posture is, as I said earlier, is to sort of approach them from a position of strength. You know, we're going to be doing our investments in defense and deterrence capabilities. We have a desire to discuss strategic stability because it benefits both sides. I think everybody can agree to that. But, you know, Either you engage or you don't, you know, and that's what's on the table. Okay, great. And then the last thing I wanted to do before we moved on to talk about the neighborhood, Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova, I wanted to kind of take note of the the way the Russian media or the dichotomy I'm noticing in Russian media commentary about the incoming Biden administration is, is really interesting and really telling. The official media. Uh, most notably television, is portraying this tired, incorrect stereotype of Biden as an out-of-touch figurehead, while more thoughtful commentators, um, and most notably, I just read a piece by Dmitry Trenin and another one by Vladimir Frolov and another one by Andrei Kartunov, who are all three 
pretty solid Russian foreign policy commentators. Um, they, they more, act, uh, I think, accurately reflect the thinking of the Russian elite rather than the, the state media is trying to put out there. Um, quoting from Trenin's piece there, he, he, he writes, rather than how he is portrayed in the Russian media, in short, as an infirm figurehead, Joe Biden is a seasoned foreign policy professional, a strategic thinker, and a ruthless player. He will be flanked and assisted by a group of ambitious, sophisticated, and energetic aides, eager to leave their mark in American foreign policy and the world. Biden's team will overlap with the rest of Putin's current one. It will be during that time that Putin has to make his fateful decision about the 2024 elections, and a lot will happen between now and then. It is good that the master of the Kremlin understands whom he will be facing in the White House. Um, that, that's Dmitry Trenin. Vladimir Fedorov, along the same line, says in person, Biden can be extremely tough when necessary, and unlike Trump, will not get flustered in the presence of Putin. In addition, he's always on top of the material and prepares carefully for every meeting with an extensive experience in diplomatic context at the highest level and powerful foreign policy team. Biden is the best prepared man to govern the country since George H.W. Bush. Um, that's Vladimir Frolov, former Russian foreign ministry official. It seems to me, Mike, um, just from reading this, from the propaganda that's being put out by the state media, and then these more thoughtful assessments of the incoming administration, it seems to me the Russian elite is preparing for a new game under the incoming administration. Would you, your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's right. I think you have to disaggregate the propaganda apparatus, which is going to spin its wheels regardless, and the analysis of intelligent people like Trenin and Froloff. But I think they're, they're spot on uh, in terms of the quotes that you just read. And, you know, the, the era of Trump with president who has done Putin's bidding, but a, sort of a bureaucracy that has been reluctant to go along with that is, is going to be over. And you're going to have a much more unified government approach that, you know, everything I think that gets done with Russia in the coming years is going to be judged on the basis of does it advance U.S. national security interests? Mm -hmm. If so, then, you know, we're going to move forward. If not... There's going to be nothing given away. Um, and in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of strengthening of our alliances and partnerships and a lot of work done to increase the resilience of our allies and partners so that we, as I said earlier, we approach Russia from a position of strength. I think that's going to be sort of the fundamental operating principle for the new team. And that is also a perfect segue into our second segment. Isn't it wonderful how these things work out? In a few moments, we will continue and broaden our discussion to look at how the incoming Biden administration may approach the post-Soviet neighborhood, specifically the Western-leaning countries of Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova. I would like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitwell and I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in the D.C. metro area is the one and only Michael Carpenter, who served as the NSC Russia director and as the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense in the administration of former President Barack Obama. Mike also served as a foreign policy.
policy advisor to then Vice President Joe Biden. He is currently the director of the Ben Biden Center and, just like me, is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Powerful Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at the brand spanking new website, powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. I have often referred to the three most Western-leaning countries in the former Soviet space, that is Georgia, Ukraine, and Moldova, as the West Berlins of our time. All three are threatened by one or more Russian-sponsored frozen conflicts. All three face persistent meddling and aggression from Moscow. All three have an uneven record of implementing political and economic reform. And two of them, Georgia and Ukraine, have official policies of seeking NATO and EU membership. Mike, how big a priority do you expect these three countries to be for the incoming Biden administration? The president-elect did have the portfolio of these countries in the Obama administration and was really the lead on them. What do you expect to see and what do you hope to see from the incoming administration with regard to these three important countries? Well, Brian, I, I both expect and hope to see a lot of engagement from the new administration. As you rightly pointed out, then Vice President Biden, he has a lot of interaction with the Ukrainian government, especially after the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. He traveled there extensively. He engaged with the leadership extensively. And, you know, one of the key thrusts of U.S. foreign policy under his tenure was to advance anti-corruption reforms in Ukraine. Similarly, he traveled to Moldova. He traveled to Georgia, in fact, mm -hmm. right after the Russian-Georgian War of August 2008. He pledged reconstruction for Georgia, which the Bush administration put forward a few weeks later. So... He is very well-versed in the region, and I think the president-elect, at least from my previous conversations with him, you know, I think he really understands that you know, it's not just, for example, in Ukraine as Russia is acting militarily in Ukraine east in the Donbass and that illegally annexed Crimea. It is also that Russia is working through oligarchs and deploying dark money to subvert these countries' democracy and in, indeed their sovereignty from within. That's how it works in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. A lot of progress over these last four years as the U.S. has sort of taken its eye off the ball in what I term malign neglect. And then, you know, this a similar thing in, in Moldova and in Georgia where, you know, Moldova had full state capture under Vladimir Plahotniuk. And, and now there's an opening for a more pluralistic uh, democratic set of reforms, although the parliament is still, you know, in the control of parties that are that are not prone towards pro-Western reforms. So, you know, all of these countries need to be coaxed along. It's not an easy process. They have to be they have to own the reform process. Right. The U.S. can't come into Ukraine or Georgia or Moldova and impose democratic reforms. It doesn't work that way. We have to have a willing partner. But you bet we can absolutely make our assistance conditional and we can absolutely telegraph that 
you know, if you want us to be on your side, you've got to get mm. serious about anti-corruption, about defense reforms, about, you know, ensuring that the electoral field is even. Those things need to be telegraphed with great clarity. And I'm pretty confident that if one person can do that, it's President yeah. Biden. Yeah, no, I would certainly agree with you about that. I mean, not only do I get the sense, and you would know a lot better than me, but I get the sense that he not only understands these countries, he cares very deeply about them. I, I certainly get that impression. What I wanted to do in the remaining time, we're bumping up toward the end here, but I wanted to take each of these cases briefly and discreetly and kind of unpack them a little bit because they each kind of pose different challenges for their own reform prospects and for U.S. foreign policy. I mean, Ukraine, we've basically seen an uneven path to reform. We have the, the war in the Donbass dragging on. We have the, you know, the early hopes of the Zelensky presidency seem to be fading. I will have former Prime Minister Alexei Honcharuk on the, on the podcast next week to talk about that. In Georgia, you see a deeply polarized society. That polarization is being driven by Russia. And you see a dangerous backsliding under the ruling party of Georgian Dream run by the pro-Russian oligarch Bidzina Ivanishvili. And as you pointed out, Mike, we, I just see a wonderful window of opportunity in Moldova with the election of Maya Sandu. She won with 57 percent of the vote in a country which has traditionally been kind of 50-50. I haven't seen a majority like that either in either a parliamentary or presidential election in Moldova ever. So um, let's let's take them one at a time, starting with Ukraine. Yeah. So, you know, I think in Ukraine, what U.S. policy needs to do going forward is to strengthen Ukraine militarily. Luckily, our defense reforms over these last four years have proceeded apace and the Pentagon has implemented them, I think, with a lot of diligence and foresight. You know, one of the few good things that the Trump administration did was to give Ukraine javelin missiles. That is a good capability for them to have. And I think we need to build on that now and continue to. Fortunately, this year's National Defense Authorization Act has a provision for using multi-year money for Ukraine, which means that rather than sort of deciding what's the best package of Christmas gifts that we can give in a single fiscal year, we can sort of rationalize the process of giving security assistance to Ukraine a little bit better and plan out into the future. And so that's important. But then at the same time, it's really critical that Ukraine tackle the influence of oligarchs who mm -hmm. now, you know, they have minders or curators, to use a similar term, in, in each of the government ministries. It's, it's really gotten to the point that it's, it's quite sick and, and debilitating, in fact, for the country. And so the, the name of the game really is de-oligarchize Ukraine to, to get the influence of these oligarchs out of public life, out mm -hmm. of politics, out of the media, and to try to create an independent, a truly independent, capable judiciary that can apply rule of law and strengthen the anti-corruption institutions, like the ones that were established in the second Obama term, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau and, and several others. That's what I think we have to do in Ukraine, is do both things simultaneously mm -hmm. and really signal that that, you know, unless Ukraine gets serious about reforms, and I'm I'm glad you're going to be talking to former Prime Minister Honcharuk. He's he's the guy to talk to about this. You know, he he tried, but then got taken out. And so what does that say about the political will to pursue reforms? It's it's not a it's not a heartening message, but, you know, things can change.
The thing in Ukraine is we're going through what I consider this, this revolution of turning Ukraine from an oligarchic pluralism into a re- into real pluralism. And that's a hard step to take. And we've seen continuous disappointment. I mean, the last three pro-Western presidents, Yushchenko, Poroshenko, and now Zelensky, have started with great hope. And then things just slid back to the kind of default oligarchic setting that they were always at. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful but concerned that we're going to be able to kind of go overcome these obstacles. Yeah, you know, it's tough, Brian, because it, you have to use so many different tools. You have to use antitrust tools. You have to use law enforcement. You have to sometimes name and shame some of the uh, oligarchs who are pulling the strings from behind the scenes. All of that needs to happen to sort of reduce their influence. It's not, as someone wisely told me the other day, it's not enough just to pursue anti-corruption. It has to be a true de-oligarchization of mm-hmm. the country. Now, Georgia, I think, presents an even more thorny problem than Ukraine right now. And it is largely due to what you collectively call this malign neglect um, that's happened, because in this time period, Georgia's really, really backslide. I mean, you and I were both there at the McCain Institute Tbilisi conference uh, just over a year ago, and we saw it was a different Georgia than the Georgia we had kind of come to know over the years. You've got a deeply polarized society. That polarization is being exacerbated by Moscow. It's organic to Georgia, but it's being exacerbated by Moscow. And you see this absolutely dangerous and disturbing backsliding under Georgian dream and under the influence of Ivanishvili, who is effectively a Russian oligarch who's ruling Georgia. How do we we deal with that? Well, the problem in Georgia is that there is a very wide discrepancy between the rhetoric of various officials that professes mm-hmm. to want European integration and NATO membership tomorrow, in fact, if possible, and then actions that just simply don't square with that, right. or in fact, are, are, are 180 degrees antithetical to it. Exactly. Like, for example, when it was revealed by some disinformation researchers that a a group tied to the ruling party was spouting uh, disinformation on Facebook that was anti-NATO and anti-Western. So, you know, how do you square those Mm -hmm. two things that are uh, totally uh, opposed to each other? What I think it, it requires is, again, greater engagement and engagement with our European partners. I mean, that, I didn't mention that in the Ukraine context, but that's critical for all three of these countries is, you know, working in lockstep with our partners. And a lot of them, they sort of engage, say, in Georgia on the security relationship. There's a substantial NATO-Georgia package and, mm-hmm. you know, 17 nations contribute all kinds of capabilities, but that's not enough. You know, they really have to be engaging the political leadership on an almost daily basis, pushing for reforms. And, you know, when we do that, we have gotten some some good results. The March political agreement between the opposition and the ruling Mm -hmm. party was a good one. But now it's sort of falling apart because the opposition sees the election as having been fraudulent. So there's a lot of work to do. I mean, Georgia is still, you know, it's still pluralistic. It's still democratic. We have to make sure that it stays that way because there is risk, as you say, of of backsliding. I mean, I want to throw one thing out here, Mike, and tell me if you think it's just kind of batshit crazy. But um, the problem in Georgia effectively is it's not just one man, but I would argue that it's primarily 
Yudzina Ivanishvili, who is effectively a Russian oligarch who made his money in Russia, who is tied to Russia, and I would argue dependent upon Russia. But yet he holds no official title in Georgia. He doesn't have any official government post. He's the leader of the Georgian Dream Party, which is the ruling party. Would it make sense to consider sanctioning Ivanishvili? Not Georgia. Yeah, well, well, that would be an extreme step. I know. I know there are some, in fact, members of Congress who have contemplated yep. things along those lines. And, you know, that would really be pretty dramatic, uh, I have to say. I would be more hopeful that an engagement by the United States that set out very clear parameters in terms of what we expect to see from Georgia as far as reforms go, as far as helping to build east-west infrastructure. Again, the Anaklia Deepwater Port is a, a project that was deep-sixed despite the fact yes. that there were American investors. Yep. And that sends a terrible signal. I know that various people have tried to explain it away as having had to do with other factors. But Nonsense. at the end of the day, it's a terrible signal to American investors who want to compete against China's BRI that, that they're being pushed out of the country. So, I, you know, I'm hopeful that engagement rather than sanctions can change behavior and, and mindsets, you know, but I know that there are some very influential members of Congress, in fact, on both sides of the aisle, mm -hmm. who have contemplated these sorts of measures. No, it's something I've been thinking about, especially since the Anaclia project was deep six, because to me, that was a wake up call and, you know, an alarm um, immediately. And, and when I say sanctions, I mean against Ivanishvili personally as a Russian proxy and that these sanctions should, if, if they're pursued, should be pursued as sanctions to help our partner Georgia against this Russian oligarch who is undermining their sovereignty. I mean, it's all in the framing, but it's just I don't even know where I stand on that right now. But I'm, I'm deeply worried about the backsliding I see in Georgia. We're bumping up against the end. Mike, do you see the wonderful window of opportunity in Moldova that I see with the election of Maya Sandu? I do. And speaking of sanctions, I think the U.S. applying sanctions against Vladimir Plahotniuk was, was a good move. He uh, espoused a pro-Western view, but was thoroughly oligarchic in terms of his interests and how he operated and effectively prevented the country from truly being a democracy. I see him and he uh, I, the same way. Yeah, go ahead. So I see a window, but the Socialist Party, which is the pro-Kremlin party, is still very strong. In Moldova, the parliament will need to change composition. I don't know whether there's plans to call for snap elections. If so, that would be interesting given the, the size of the majority by which Maya Sandu won the presidency. So, yes, there's hope, but you know, I think we also need to be a little bit cautious given the fact that there are both pro-Kremlin and just simply demagogic parties in Moldova that are still quite strong and entrenched. So if we have a, a change in future parliamentary elections, I think there's a little bit more scope for seeing mm -hmm. true reforms implemented, because unfortunately, the presidency is largely ceremonial. You know, it, it's not completely ceremonial like in some countries, but it doesn't have as much power as, as the prime ministry, the prime ministership, the premiership has. So let's hope but there's still a, a long ways to go. 
it just was a signal to me, even though the presidency is largely ceremony, it was a signal to me that there is an emerging pro-Western majority in Moldova, which had previously been a 50-50 country. And that's the cause of my my optimism. Um, so unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Global Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in the D.C. metro area has been the one and only Michael Carpenter, who serves the NSC Russia director and as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense in the administration of former President Barack Obama. Mike also served as a foreign policy advisor to then Vice President Joe Biden. Mike is currently the director of the Penn Biden Center and like me, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you, Mike, for an enlightening discussion. Thanks, Brian. This has been great. It's been great. I'd also like to thank our production team. Lance Liga is in the virtual control room who keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn, who handles our all-important post-production duties, which include making me and my guests sound a whole hell of a lot better than we actually do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Virtual Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and and tune in. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter. Join us again next week when I will be joined by Ukrainian Prime Minister Alexei Honcharuk and the Atlantic Council's Deputy Eurasia Director Melinda Herring to look at the state of affairs in Kyiv. Until then, as always, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that has been prepared by our awesome production team.